0: As he was flying, he flew over a familiar area that uh, he realized he was flying over an area where he had grown up, and he looked over to the co-pilot, and as he flew over a, a large lake, uh, he told the co-pilot, said, so look at that lake down there. As, as, a, as a kid, I, I remember fishing on that lake, and every time I heard a plane go over, that's all I wanted to do, was I wanted to learn to fly one of those planes one of these days, and here, here I am now flying that plane, and you know what? I want to be down there fishing. (laughs) Contentment, it's elusive. We often look for what might be just the right thing, the perfect thing for us. We spend a lot of time uh, searching into things, looking to find the right job, the right person to get married to. Uh, Contentment can be very elusive. Uh, I think of cats sometimes when I think of contentment, and uh, we had this cat that would climb up into my lap every once in a while and fall asleep and purr, and it was just the perfect look of contentment, but nobody knew what really took place between that cat and I when it wasn't sitting in my lap, that that cat was neurotic, and I was probably responsible for it. Um, because I, I did not want that cat to be sitting in my lap and looking so content to be like that. Not in my lap, anyway. Uh, but sometimes we have that picture of, of, of the cat or the dog or the animal. that's just, just fully lying. Look how content they are. But contentment, we're not sure what it means for sure, but it's something that Paul talked about in this fourth chapter of Philippians. As you know, we've been going through the book of Philippians, the last several Sundays, and we're uh, kind of towards the end of the the, the book of Philippi, or the, the book written to the church at Philippi, and Paul is telling his readers again to rejoice, uh, but he talks about his own life a little bit, and how he has learned to be content in uh, many situations, and that's kind of where we're going to head this morning, is what did Paul really say about being content, because... He didn't have a cat sitting on his lap while he was in jail. Um, But yet he had, he said he had learned to be content. But as we move through life, we find that in reality, we may not really be all that content when we think we have found the perfect uh, antidote for peace in our lives. I was reading an author this week about... uh, Different ideas about contentment and particularly with this passage Um, The idea of that we're not as happy as we um, Appear to be or want to be or seek to be is uh, Brought out by just the the mere number of changes that we make in our lives if you look at the number of moves that people make um, I read a statistic that the average person before he is 50, we'll move 11 and a half times. Yeah, that that half move must be really tough. Uh, <laughs> but we'll move 11 and a half times. If you're in the military, that's going to be even more. But uh, that sometimes the military folks will consider that one long duty station, that uh, 20 as as living in different spots, but not really a a mere uh, a move because it's a uh, not a career change. But But people make a lot of moves. I've got a nephew who calls himself a minimalist. He doesn't want to stay anywhere more than six months. He doesn't want to have any more than 100 things that he owns, as long as he can fit it in his backpack. And I think about whether he's really happy or not. Uh, We hear stories about... uh, Every, every time he's getting ready for the next move, uh, the sorrow that he leaves behind, but yet he's on this journey to be a minimalist and to to not hold roots anywhere because that gives him the freedom to just stay on a lifetime journey all the time. The question is whether he's happy. My stepfather, though, was just the opposite. He had uh, the idea that the man with the most toys wins. And unfortunately, I had to have a three-car garage to store all of his toys when he passed away. And the unfortunate thing is, is with my the generation following me being somewhat minimalistic and not wanting things and the generation preceding me wanting to have more and more and more toys, I'm caught in the middle where my kids don't want the stuff I inherited. So it sits in storage sheds. Sometimes our uh, lack of contentment is shown in the number of marriages or partners that we seek. divorce um, rate currently is about 50%. Um, long-term marriages are uh, not abounding. Um, I think maybe as those of us sitting in this church might might hold a, a, a record for longer-term marriages. Uh, I've, I've been blessed with 42 years. It'll be 43 next month. Um, but I don't come from a family of long-term marriage, and uh, the number of marriages, just the idea of it's, it's, uh, it's not permanent. The idea that I can just change partners whenever I want to, and in fact, many people are not getting married. They live with one partner for a while until they're tired, and then they'll move on to the next partner. And I think contentment is also elusive in the way that we seek employment. Um, Between the ages of 18 and 50 a person will have an average of 12 different jobs not that one settles down when they're 50 but it's harder to uh, stay employed uh, for the longer term if you've not had a good track record up to uh, that time but again contentment is difficult to define because we're seeking for something we're not sure what it is we're looking for in this passage a, uh, a pastor from from Arizona who had studied this passage uh, quite in depth, says that the word in this passage comes from a Greek word that uh, means that one is self-sufficient or independent. And when we think of Paul. Paul didn't need things. He was thankful for all that the Philippians had done for him, but he had learned to be self-sufficient in where he was, that... If he was in prison, he could learn how to be happy there. If he had a lot of things going well for him, he could learn how to be happy in that process too. But the philosophers of the day, the the Stoics, elevated the word to include to be free from all want or needs. um, And to the point that your life was marked by emotional detachment and indifference we don't see this in paul's life and the word contentment as paul uses it means that he was self-sufficient in jesus christ and that's where self-sufficiency was but we have visions of this type of stoic person uh, given to us in in the tv shows uh, karen and i uh, a few weeks back when were Kind of bored, and we went to the library and picked up a TV series that had been popular over the last couple of years. And we, we had a marathon uh, TV experience over a couple of days. Maybe that's why she wasn't doing anything at the mission. I don't know, Johnny. Uh, <laughs> but we decided to watch the TV series Longmire. We all, all six seasons. We, we, we pop popcorn and and watched it, and and uh, we. It's one o'clock in the morning. We've already seen five, five episodes tonight. What are we going to do? Um, watch another one or maybe we better get to bed. <laughs> anyway, uh, the, the character, uh, Longmire, uh, is a guy who's very stoic. He, he has no need of anybody else. He doesn't want anybody else to help him. He's independent. He's stoic. He says, I'm self-sufficient and, and nobody is going to tell me what to do. Nobody's going to tell me how to do it and I'm just going to take this completely by myself because I am 100% self-sufficient. We see the same character in in the uh, character of, of Gibbs on NCIS. He's that self-sufficient guy that says, I don't need anybody. I'll take care of everything myself, and I don't want to have any kind of deep relationships, um, not even with, with those that I work with. He keeps himself at his distance. And so we see that this kind of Stoicism is admired in our TV shows, but yet it's not the same self-sufficiency that Paul talked about because Paul in the book of Philippians shows that he had deep attachments. When he writes the people at Philippi, he's very attached to them. He's very grateful, very thankful for what They have sent him in the way of gifts. He is longing to see, wanting to send the people that have helped him while he's in prison. He's wanting to send them back to them so that they can help uh, them. Uh, He was not detached from him. He was not detached from his feelings. He says in this in this passage of Philippians in this book of Philippians that the word rejoice keeps appearing over and over and over again. It's like it's the word that is the glue that holds the entire book of Philippians together. Uh, where everything that he thinks about gives him another chance to to rejoice and to have joy or to tell us that we can have joy. Um, He says, no, I'm not self-sufficient because my sufficiency is in Christ. We read in 1 Corinthians that Paul uh, did have some weak points, uh, but he gloried in those weak points because in those times that he was weak, he found that his strength was really in God. Something, it was a thought that was shared in Sunday school this morning, that that self-sufficiency really wasn't his self-sufficiency, but where he was totally dependent upon God. And and this kind of contentment that we see that Paul has is not being complacency either. Um, That complacency is a sense of being very uh, smug, uh, I've done it on my own. I've made it on my own. Uh, the Frank Sinatra song, I've did it my way. Uh, I'm not old enough for that generation, but I heard my parents play that record all the time. Uh, I did it my way. It's, a, it's proud, uh, self-satisfied, um, self-congratulatory. Uh, Paul wasn't that way either. His sense of contentment was is that he sat there in the prison knowing the Holy Spirit was sitting alongside of him in every way possible, and that he was experiencing the very love of God in the deepest, darkest moments of his life. But how did Paul learn that contentment? How did he get there? He tells us in in this fourth chapter of Philippians a few things about his life that he shares with his readers that can give us some hints of how to have this sense of of peace at the moment that I don't have to keep striving harder and harder and harder to find that perfect sense of of, of, of being uh, content uh, to the point that I am uh, self-seeking for myself. Earlier in chapter 3, Paul talks about This idea that his sole focus is upon knowing Jesus Christ and knowing the fellowship of his sufferings and the power of his resurrection. We talked about that last week uh, when we looked at chapter 3. And as Paul unfolds this chapter, as he brings the chapter 3 to a close and moves on into chapter 4, he says uh, how he really feels about his life here on earth. He says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that we would be like his body. Paul recognized that his citizenship was not here. Now, Paul's an interesting, fellow, because in the third chapter, he talks about, Hey, I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews, I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. He out all of these great things about himself that he says i could put them to my account as something great he says that i count them all lost compared to knowing jesus christ but here he is a jew of the jews and where he's sitting at the present time is in a roman prison and the reason that he's in roman in the roman prison is is because he touted the fact that he was a roman citizen so here's paul A citizen of Israel and Paul a citizen of Rome now saying wait a minute I'm really a citizen of heaven it's not either one of those where I find and learn my contentment about four or five days ago I saw a a quick news thing on um, what's her name that married Prince Harry, uh, Miss Markle, I can't think of her first name. Uh, Megan, I, I knew somebody would know it, it's the royal family. Uh, Megan Markle married Harry, and Megan is a uh, U.S. citizen, and Harry is a U.K. citizen, and even though that she's applying for British citizenship, by the time their baby is born, she will still be a U.S. citizen, which means that as a citizen of the United States, because she is a citizen, can grow up and become the U.S. president. At the same time, because he's part of the royal family, he can grow up and become the king of England. Now, some touted this article and said, now, just wouldn't that be the way that England gets back the United States? But the citizenship was a question. And Paul is saying, you know, when it comes right down to it, my citizenship is in heaven, where we eagerly await a Savior that's going to come from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he's not worried about whether he's a Hebrew or the Hebrews or whether he's a Roman citizen sitting in a prison jail in Rome somewhere, but rather he's saying that, for me, it's acknowledging who am I really A part of and belong to what really is my identity our identity is in jesus christ because we are citizens of heaven but paul says he learned to be content because in christ i can do all things he says verse 12, I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through Him who gives me strength. I want you to look at the contrasts that are in this book of, of Philippians uh, in Paul's life. He says in chapter 2, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. He's got that contrast of whether he lives or whether he dies, but yet he finds Himself at peace in either way because either way, God is in control. He's in prison. He's out of prison. He says, either way, God is in control. If I'm out of prison, I'm speaking and preaching the gospel. If I'm in prison, I'm writing letters and telling people about the word anyway and about the power of the Holy Spirit. He's lived in in hardship. And you read that passage in 1 Corinthians about all the hardships that he went through. We shared it last week. and He went through a lot. Went through a lot physically. But he also writes about joy throughout this book of Philippians. He writes about joy. So whether he's in hardship or whether he's just so full of joy that he can't contain himself, he's at peace with God. He's in the midst of adversity. He tells his readers that, you know, some people are, are preaching Christ just to make me jealous. Some people are preaching Christ for their own gain. There's people that are uh, making it very difficult for him in many ways. They're enemies of the church. But yet he writes about the sportive encouragement that he receives from the people at the church at Philippi. Whether in adversity or in supportive encouragement, Paul is at peace. It's a learned behavior. He didn't just automatically have that, but over time, in his experience, and his walk with the Heavenly Father, he learned how to be at peace. But there's a few things that he did in the meantime, probably on a daily basis, because he understood that life was still Uh, that life could still present its set of anxieties. He says in the first few verses of this passage, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Prayer versus anxiety. Paul could be very anxious about what's going on in the setting that he's currently in. But he says, no, rejoice. I'm going to say it again, rejoice. The Lord is near. You don't need to be anxious. Now, Experiencing occasional anxiety is a normal part of life. I, I get anxious just about every time I step up here. Uh, it's normal, and if i didn't feel that way, then there would be no space for the Holy Spirit so it 's normal, but sometimes our anxiety goes beyond normal and and because of uh, fears they fears can move us into uh, such an anxiety level that uh we need some some help uh we need some some therapy, we might need some some medicines or something like that. But, but Paul is talking about, I don't need to be anxious in life because God will hear my prayers. I can be gentle about things. Now we all have some phobias. It's interesting. I, I pulled up a list of phobias this week. <clears throat> There's a lot of them out there. Hippopotamonstrosaquipadelophobia. You ever hear that one? What did you say it was, Kim? I didn't say I thought you did. Okay, you're just blowing your nose. All right, well, that's a fear of long words. (laughs) Hippopotamus, big? (laughs) Monstrous? A fear of long words. Didascalophobia. Didascalophobia. Fear of long words. All right, it's a real fear. People get therapy for that. <laughs> Didoscocyanophobia, fear of school. Most Fear of school, mostly troubles kids. Gracchoscopophobia, the fear of getting old, mostly affects old people. It's a the fear of cotton balls. They also use the same word for a fear of styrofoam, uh, the noise that styrofoam makes. I think my daughter has this because she hates the sound of styrofoam breaking or squeaking or with the sound that it makes when you, you squeak it together, and my son knew that she hated that, and every time we got a package in the mail, he would take the styrofoam and just walk up behind her, and, <clears throat> and she would scream. It was it like, was all right, here's one, and, and this, this you'll all get. Banana-phobia. So fear bananas. Some people think bananas are scary. But Paul says, I don't worry about these things. I don't worry about these things at all, because the Holy Spirit has allowed me to have a gentle spirit in the midst of all things. It says, I don't need to be anxious because I can pray. And when I pray, I pray with thanksgiving, thanking God for everything that God has provided for me, everything that God is doing, the presence of God, the love of God. And when he prays, he says, present the requests that I have to God. I can take everything to God in prayer, as the hymn says. You know, he says that when he prays with thanksgiving and he makes his request known to God, it says here there's a promise. The peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You know, when I stop and thank God for what he's doing, and I recognize that I can come to him in prayer. There's a peace that transcends all the things that I don't know about that can create the anxiety. And my heart and my mind is protected from what God is doing. The next verse he says, not only do I find that I find praise rather than anxiety in life. I, I, uh, I'm going to consider praiseworthy thinking. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. Psalm 1. Blessed is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. When I think about the things of God, the things that are right true, the things that are uh, pure, the great things, the admirable things, if they're excellent, if they're praiseworthy, I'm going to meditate upon those things. Because that's where I experience the peace and the presence of God. And so not only does he let his mind think on on the things that are good rather than the things that could tear him down, the things that could destroy him, the things that could go wrong, which so often we might do. I worked in an environment where we were constantly doing a risk assessment on just about every action we would move forward with. And uh, after you've considered the risk assessment and weighed the analysis, of of which is the best route to go, you choose the best option. I'm glad I don't have to live that way anymore. Because the best option is God's option. And I can think about what God wants. And the risk analysis is not needed. Because in trusting Jesus Christ, all risk is gone. He says, not only do I think on these things that are good and lovely and great and right in the world, I'm going to practice what I don't. He says in the next verse, whatever you learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. Paul gained confidence in the Lord. Started out small maybe. He didn't know what happened to him on that day, on the rode when he was blinded, but over time and with practice, he began to know and know more and more about the love of Jesus Christ. And he gives and he says, my confidence is in him. He says that I push forward to lay hold of what God has laid hold of me for. There is no better place in the world to be in the middle of what God has laid you for. Lay hold of you for. I can get a lot of anxiety going by thinking about what God is going to lay hold of me for next year. But I know what He's laid hold of me for right now. And that's where I need to be. Promise comes with putting into practice those things that we know. We know that we should be in God's Word. We know that we should be fellowshipping. We know that we should be praying. We know that we should be worshipping. We know that we should be seeking God's love. We know that we should be reaching out to somebody else that is hurting. We know those things. So put them into practice. Put them into practice. But the promise says, and I want you to notice things in the sentence structure when he says this. Where he said earlier, the peace of God will be with you, he now says, via promise, the God of peace will be with you. We have moved in the transition in this passage from not only knowing the peace of God, but the very God of peace is with us. It's, not, it's one thing to know God's peace is something far greater to know the God that's behind that peace. And he closes out the the passage by saying, I have learned the secret of being content in every and any situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Why? Because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. There's a lot of things I can't do. And it used to give me a lot of grief that the things that I couldn't do. I'm learning to focus on what I can do. It's kind of fun. It's kind of peaceful. But it starts with knowing Jesus Christ and the fellowship of His sufferings and the power of the resurrection, if you knew not, you know Jesus Christ is your Savior. The invitation is there. Come and know Him. Weigh everything else you got, and see how it stands up. Because knowing Jesus Christ is the best thing there is. I ask the worship team to come forward. We're going to close out our worship service with an open invitation. If you don't know Jesus Christ, come.